Okay, it, it was in the bulletin, but apparently not. So, I will invite David to come forward then to read the scripture. And uh, he, as he reads from Matthew, uh, I'd like you to get past something that's sort of apparently a diss in this scripture, but find really what Jesus is going after in talking about a very inclusive version of family. The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Holy wisdom, holy word. Some years back, country singer Jessica Andrews gave us this lyric. I am Rosemary's granddaughter the spitting image of my father. And when the day is done, my mom is still my biggest fan. Sometimes I'm clueless and I'm clumsy, but I've got friends who love me and they know just where I stand. It's all a part of me. That's who I am. So when I say these words, is there somebody in your family that you think about who you are most like? Not the one where they say, oh, you've got your mother's eyes. No, the one you have to acknowledge when they say, that's just like your father. (laughs) So at this moment, that might be a happy or unhappy thought. Those with teenagers might know that sometimes the parent with whom you have the most problematic relationship is the one who you are most like. Or it can be more complicated. I'm likened to both my mother and my father, but with my mother, the similarities drew us into an easy, loving relationship. With my father, just made us butt heads. As you look across the panoply of your family, there's, I'm sure, a broad spectrum of people and relationships. The great aunt who wore too much lipstick and always insisted on giving you a big kiss. The cousins that, when you'd get together, you'd just play all day, all night together. The uncle that always had a little present for you. That was my Uncle Ange. We used to spend holidays when I was real young out at his ranch, some of my best memories. All day running around with my cousin Marie and playing endless games of Monopoly. Last week I spoke about my grandmother Armstrong and her role in my life. And when mom would get into a jam, which sadly was all too frequently, she'd call Graham and Graham would come and spend time taking care of us. And that was really the foundation of our relationship. Those familiar relationships can change over time. Some tend to fade away. Some grow unexpectedly stronger. They say that you can't choose your family, but in some sense that's not completely true. Yes, your, your immediate family is always going to be your immediate family. Your brothers and your siblings and, and your parents 
are people that you should treat as if they're going to be in your life all your life because they're going to be. So anything you know, too drastic is not called for. But beyond that, when it comes to spending time with people, we spend with time, time with the people with whom we have most in common and who nourish our souls. At a party for my brother, oh, some 10 years ago now, it was some family, mostly friends, his friends, but over the course of decades, they've become my friends as well. And I thought about how those relationships had twined together and how those people had come to have strong meaning for me. It came together really well in a discussion with my brother's friend, Holly, who's also been my brother, my, my friend, for 40 years. And she said, well, you've got the family you're born into and the family that you choose. My brother, when I told him that story last month, he said, yes, Holly's definitely family. <laughs> Richard Bach put it this way, the bond that links your true family is not one of blood, but of respect and joy in each other's life. Roger Ingalls, in service a couple months ago, told us about his bandmates being the first family that he chose. And I love that analogy. And when I have gone through some of the slides here, some that I put up and some that, that uh, Bill Ferguson put up, that I found that there was a wide and amazing diversity of families that I had chosen over the years. I've found family that I chose in science and especially in crystal growth, in yoga, softball, massage, wine tasting, Fallon's preschool friends, and our big annual pasta party, just to name a few. How many of you have or had an aunt or an uncle. It's no blood relation whatsoever. How many of you were that aunt or uncle? About a year before my dad died, we had a chance to sit down and talk about things and talked about all the people that were in my life when I was real little. You know, when you're five, you don't know quite who's who. you blood relation, not blood relation. You only know who it is that cares about you. We often define ourselves by the company that we keep. There's even a phrase for the negative, keeping bad company. But that sort of implies that other people have more influence on us than we have over <coughs> them. Shouldn't we be keeping good company for those who are in distress? Jesus certainly kept a lot of bad company, at least as far as the people around him were concerned. He saw their road to salvation. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Going back to the line, I know who I am. We know from a very early age that Jesus knew exactly who he was. But how do we know who Jesus was? He didn't leave any personal writings for us. The historical records of the Romans, the Pharisees, the Herod administration are likely to be more than a little bit biased. 
Now, of course, we know about Jesus from the writings of the apostles. And yes, I know scholars will debate endlessly when the Gospels were written down and by whom, but make no mistake about it. These are the stories of Jesus that the disciples told. The apostles were those with whom he shared his trials and tribulations of his ministry, the ultimate band of brothers, and sisters too. The female followers of Jesus may be somewhat underdocumented in the Gospels, but we know they were omnipresent, and his mother Mary and Mary Magdalene were with him when he died. This was the family that Jesus chose. Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The apostles in some ways were so disparate that one Simon was called the rock, Peter in Greek, and the other was called the zealot. They ranged from prosperous fisherman to a reformed tax collector. And in the Gospels, we see documented many of the family's sort of behaviors that we see in our own family. The apostles arguing on the road of who was the greatest. John and James asking Jesus to sit at his right and left hand. As well as the great deeds and miracles, they shared every mundane event that families share. Jesus did not simply create a miracle every time a task needed to be performed. They had to find out where they were going to sleep, what they were going to eat, what they were wear. Think about it. Traveling with Jesus as if he truly were your brother. The early church was shaped by these men with all their virtues and occasional flaws. The disciples, sometimes second-guessing Jesus, but always, always following. Their words speak to us over the centuries of Jesus' words and deeds, his public ministry, and his private faith. They tell us who he was, the one who we follow as Christians, and specifically here as Methodists. So, how do we know who we are as Methodists? Well, we're followers of John Wesley, a man of whom it's been said is frequently quoted and seldom read. (laughs) Guilty. I could do it with a lot more study of the roots and tenets of Methodism. But we've all been here long enough that we know what it is about this church that's right for us. In a recent newspaper article contrasting so-called evangelical and radical denominations with mainstream denominations, including United Methodism, they talked about the differences. And how ironic, because we are the followers of some of the great evangelicals and radicals of history. John and Charles Wesley, Martin Luther, Peter, Paul, and the greatest radical of all time, Jesus Christ. So what's up with calling us mainstream? United Methodism is not what's called a confessional denomination. There's not a list of beliefs that we're required to sign up to. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's not a free-form religion. We don't think of ourselves as radicals. But what this says to me is that for us, our faith is intensely personal, never merely institutional. Our relationship with God is first and foremost between us and God. 
enabled but not governed by doctrine or the pastor or the church. We are expected to be creatures of reason and through reason ask questions of faith and seek to understand God's will. Personally, I think that's pretty demanding and pretty radical. In Methodism, we practice works of piety in which God works through us, quickening, strengthening, and confirming our faith. Prayer, reading, and interpreting scripture, not simply taking it as gospel, but looking at it more deeply for a personal understanding of what the gospel means. Holy Communion, healthy living, Christian conferencing or community. Together, there's a healthy balance between individual and communal acts. The twin pedestals of our faith are our personal relationship with God and our relationship with the larger Christian community. Karen's and my family is far-flung, and we don't make it to every funeral, but rather than send flowers, we tend to send a fruit basket. As Karen has put it, it's too far to take a covered dish. There speaks a Methodist. In comforting the morning, we always understand that they will need to eat. To me, Methodism has always been expressed as a loving and sustaining our fellow humans. Love of God is inextricably linked with our love for our neighbors. Our evangelism is not so much about proselytizing as it is about showing our faith and our actions towards others every day. As Methodists, we believe that all people can be saved. That is why our missions and ministries are such an integral part of the church. In Methodism, the means of grace in which God works through us explicitly include acts of mercy. Visiting the sick and imprisoned. Well, personally, probably do better with the sick than the imprisoned, but many Methodist congregations have prison ministries. Feeding and clothing those in need. It's hard to tell a cold, starving person to keep their eyes on paradise. Earning, saving, and giving all one can. We like that first part, but... At Aldersgate, the pastor's discretionary fund is often the last resort of those truly in need. Doing good and seeking justice for all. There's nothing terribly new in all this. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. As Methodists, we believe that personal salvation always involves Christian mission and service to the world. Our ministry is personal, never simply collective. The traditional bidding to the covenant prayer tells us the following. Christ has many services to be done. Some are easy, some are difficult. Some bring honor, others bring reproach. Some are suitable to our natural inclinations and temporal interests. Others are contrary to both. Yet the power to do all these things is given to us in Christ who strengthens us. No two churches are alike, even in the same denomination. 
United Methodism may be expressed very differently in places other than Aldersgate. Our worship is shaped by who we are as a religious and social community, led by our pastor, and governed by our ongoing interaction and interplay among us. While there might be an element of geographical convenience in coming to Aldersgate, we stay because this place is the right fit for us. This is the family of faith that we have chosen, and it can be every bit as individualistic and eccentric as your biological family. But we know the strengths we can draw from each of us and that we can count on one another. The whole community of faith is greater than the sum of the parts. As we support one another in our relationship with God. We are connected through a higher plane, through our faith and our love. When we join the church, this is the commitment we make. This then is your family of faith. Cherish them as you would your birth family. Join together in caring for the sick and yes, for the imprisoned. Share the nurturing of the young Learn from the wisdom of brothers and sisters, grandmothers and grandfathers, sons and daughters, both hard-won and fresh and new. Come together in fellowship as we can. Grieve for those who are lost to our family on earth, but await us with God our Father and Christ our brother in heaven. And remember the words of Jesus Christ. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Let us pray. Dear Lord, bless our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let our relationship in your name grow and blossom as it is nourished by the light of your love. Let us together be your body to do your work on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.